Hey crew, before we get started today, I wanted to let you know that our live episode from Convergence 2017 is now available on our Patreon page. Head to patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D. There you can find our live show, where I and a panel of special guests discuss Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And coming soon to our Patreon page, our ongoing series of mini-episodes for our Deep Space Nine rewatch, where I'll be providing commentary and analysis on DS9, and oh my god, there's more. Patrons will have access to my production diary for Klingon Christmas Carol, which I'll be directing this December at the Historic Mounds Theater in St. Paul. All of this is available to our patrons, our crew members, and you can become one by going to patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Join today for as little as $1 and get access to our great subscriber content, rewards, and much, much more. One more time, it's patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. Enlist today. You might notice a few audio hiccups on this episode, and it's for the same reason that I mentioned on our last show. To get specific, we had a hard drive failure last month, and although we were able to save most of our episodes and interview files, there's some audio irregularities left on them. Um, I've done what I can to clean them up, and they're not too bad, but they may exist on the next couple of shows. Just warning you. Let me reiterate, one of our stretch goals on our Patreon pertains to getting some improved audio equipment, so if you want to help with that, go to patreon.com forward slash EISDpod. Thanks. And with that, let's get underway. It's worked so far, but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking. There are some things you can't hide. I want to know what you're feeling. Tell me what's on your mind. Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the Star Trek discussion podcast that boldly goes into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Caliban, and here's a tip for your next Kunat Calafee. The Lerpa looks cool, but you want to go with the Onwoon. It gives you reach. You strike from a distance. And don't forget your Triox compound. You're going to need that. I'm joined on this episode by Dave Galanter, author of multiple Star Trek novels and short stories, specifically the 2009 pocket TOS novel, Troublesome Minds. Dave also wrote the episode Enemy Starfleet for the fan-produced Star Trek New Voyages series and has contributed to the Writer's and Director's Guide for the New Voyages Phase 2 production. Dave, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Permission to come aboard granted. Today we'll be talking about Amok Time, the first episode of the second season of Star Trek, the original series, a show with a lot to prove. Star Trek was entering its second season on NBC at this time. The show was popular with fans, but was low in the Nielsen ratings. Desilu, the studio that produced Star Trek, had been sold to Paramount, meaning the production had new corporate masters to please, and slightly tighter budgets to work with. But the show would prove to be a cultural phenomenon in its second season, streamlining its storytelling while adding depth to its colorful characters, delivering classic episodes with elements that would inspire Trek writers for the next half century, and would continue to explore the cultural themes and social commentary that it was famous for. But forget all that, it's the Kunut Calafi. Play the music. (laughs) 
I can't even pretend. This is one of, if not my favorite episode of Star Trek. It's exciting. It's dramatic. It adds so much depth to the characters that we are just learning to love. And it does all of it by building on the work of its skilled cast and crew and with a script provided by a legend of science fiction. But we'll get to that a little later in the show. First, let's talk about your backstory. How did you become a Star Trek fan? Um, my mother introduced me uh, to Star Trek when I was uh, when I was pretty young. She was a Star Trek fan, an original one. I'm not old enough to have seen it um, uh, when it was, you know, in in live run. Yeah. Uh, my mother did not offer me a womb with a view, um, <laughs> but uh, she was a science fiction fan, so she got me into almost anything that was science fiction and Star Trek. Uh, was I think my first real science fiction love? Yeah, to the point where when uh, when I would watch Leonard Nimoy's In Search of show, I would yes. pretend that was Mister Spock giving me <laughs> reports. Uh, right, <laughs> you know, because I thought, well, Spock is giving me a report on uh, the the Aztecs now. Yeah, the right. secrets of the pyramids. Right, right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Which was a horribly hokey show, and probably not something I should have been watching when I was. You know, seven years old or whatever, whatever. Right. Because, uh, I can't imagine it. It was uh, uh, my memory of it is, is that it was a lot of questions and not a lot of answers. Yeah. Now it's mostly just the History Channel. I think pretty much 75 percent of their programming is that now. Yeah, pr- pretty much. Uh, I like to imagine that uh, Rescue 911 is Admiral Kirk's uh, day-to-day life at the Academy. <laughs> it's the reason that he wanted to get back on the Enterprise because, boy, just helping people who have fallen down and cats up trees and stuff. You know, that was a good show, I remember. I, I remember that taught kids how to use 911 because 911 wasn't always around. It was relatively new, yeah. Yeah. Um, so my, my, uh, my delving into Star Trek was, uh, was all from my mom, and, and uh, we used to discuss it as if it were almost real. Now, you worked with the, the New Voyages, uh, now the Phase 2 uh, production, you wrote for their writer's guide. Is that kind of like their series Bible? Uh, it, it was. Uh, you, know what, you know what it was? I... Uh, uh, I did an episode with them with uh, with Patty Wright, who was one of their producers at the time, and uh, she was working on their 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 Bible and got some input from me and and uh, James Colley, who was running it at the time. That I, I don't think they're doing any more uh, uh, episodes at this point, but mm-hmm. uh, um, it was just to sort of help out these fans and have some fun. Um, sure. And uh, it was a it was a great deal of fun. Uh, fan stuff can be uh, can be very cool. And James Colley basically was doing Star Trek summer camp. Um, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> it's hard not to say, hey, let me come and sit in the chair a little bit, which yeah. uh, how, which he lets do. <laughs> how did you uh, sell yourself to them as the expert that needs to help write their Bible? Uh, you know, I didn't. Uh, he just sort of asked. He said, I mean, nice. you know, uh, they know about the Star Trek authors. Um, I was introduced to them by Howie Weinstein, who's another uh, Star Trek author. Mm-hmm. And um, we hit it off because we're just all big Star Trek fans. So I'm not sure that they were uh, looking for uh, expertise and I was selling them expertise because knows <laughs> I had never really you know, I've never sold a, a TV show or anything. Um, and it's right. not, I don't think it's the, 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 certainly it's not the best script they ever filmed or the best one I ever wrote. Uh, but, uh, but it was just fun. It's, it's their, their goal really is to sort of, uh, have Star Trek, uh, summer camp and film it and show it to people if they want to see it. And often fans know more than even the writers do. You know, they get writers and uh, stars get corrected all the time at cons about, uh, no, actually, it's the uh, USS Constellation that was involved. in the- Well, you know, I feel bad for actors because uh, <laughs> uh, depending, I, I think 
like uh, George Takei might know as much about it, uh, you know, any Star Trek fan as 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 anything. I think he remembers episode titles, but but Shatner, right. whose job it was to learn, Lord knows how many lines per episode. There's no yeah. way he could remember all that stuff, and he's been a busy working actor since that time. And oh, I yeah. can't imagine he goes back and watches the shows, you know, right, other than right, maybe right. stopping on the dial for five minutes. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes uh, having to uh, learn those lines on the day, as we'll uh, talk about a little later in this episode. Um, you're also the owner of ComicBoards.com and TVShowBoards.com. Can you talk about how that got started? Co-owner, yeah. I, um, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Alvaro Ortiz, um, started uh, uh, the Comic Boards message boards. Um, and uh, there was a time when they needed a server and uh, they needed some, uh, I, I guess, management guidance because uh Alvaro was busy um sure. and uh i was one of the people that stepped up and provided uh, the server space and the domain name and uh, some of that uh, moderation guidance he and i became sure. really close friends and so uh he just cut me in for uh you know co-ownership in it which is what's funny is it doesn't it really doesn't uh it, it's not like it makes any money or anything it's, well, uh, well, yeah. it, it's just it was just for fun and here's the sad part um, he, I've distanced myself from it. I just, I don't go that much anymore because I'm not reading as many comics as I used to. Um, yeah. and, uh, but it was, it was for years fun. I met a lot of friends through it and, uh, it's just a place to sort of discuss whatever you want. That's not quite as harsh as, you know, Reddit or some of the other boards <laughs> yeah. out there. Right, right. I like that philosophy, uh, a place where, uh, a safe place where you can discuss stuff and not get uh, downvoted or cut down for some errant comment you make we, about uh, something that happened in Captain Marvel. We or do not like let that. people insult each other. Yeah, there you go. And that's, that's nice. all over the internet, generally. And you could insult someone's idea. You could say, boy, I really don't agree with that, or that's dumb, but you can't say <laughs> right. you're dumb. Yeah, okay. All right. Uh, that's fair. Affirm but fair. Uh, you're no stranger to storylines involving Spock struggling with his Vulcan nature. Your novel Troublesome Minds deals with that specifically. Other than those parallels, why did you pick this episode specifically to discuss today? I love Spock. Oh, me too. <laughs> um, uh, uh, Troublesome Minds was uh, about Spock, and actually so is Crisis of Consciousness, which was the, the book after it that I wrote. Right. And um, he fascinates me, uh, no pun intended. Fascinating, sure. Um, in, in that, you know, I try to be logical and rational too um and uh, is just you know a normal human uh, uh <laughs> that's difficult sometimes um although it's really the only the only way we can really know about the world around us is to employ logic um but we have all of these feelings and i think his struggle is uh a a microscope of everybody's struggle because we all feel like we don't belong. You know, J.J. Abrams has said this about the character. We all have felt like we don't belong. We're of, you know, one or two different worlds and don't fit into either. And uh, he is that character who's struggling with his emotions. And we all struggle with our emotions. Yeah, that's that is fascinating. Yeah. Well, we are talking about the original series episode, Amok Time. It is the first episode of the second season of Star Trek, the original series. It first aired on September 15th of 1967. It was written by Theodore Sturgeon, the prolific and beloved science fiction author, who we'll talk more about in a bit. It was directed by Joseph Pevney, who has been mentioned many times in this show as a veteran original series director. The star date for this episode is 
And your assignment, Dave, if you can, is to give us a 25-word synopsis of Evmachtan. A 25-word? You didn't tell me I'd have to do that. All right, let me... You have to be prepared. Let me, let me see. Uh, I don't know. I, I won't be able to count words, but let me, let me give it uh, the best I can. Go for it. Um, Spock is going to die if he does not go back to Falcon and spawn with the female he's been betrothed to. Hilarity ensues. <laughs> You'd be surprised how many of these synopsis end with hilarity. Hilarity, hilarity ensues. ensues. <laughs> that should just be tagged on. That's pretty clean, though. I like that. Uh, here's some interesting facts from the memory banks for this episode. This, of course, is the um, show that starts the second season of Star Trek. And it's the show's first episode to delve into Vulcan culture. So we've got a lot of firsts here. Uh, it's the first time that we uh, see Ponfar, um, the Vulcan salute, live long and prosper. Um, it establishes that female Vulcans have names that start with a T. We also see the Lerpa and the Amun. And, of course, the Vulcan marriage ritual and Plaktau, the blood fever, is introduced as well. Uh, Lawrence Montaigne, who plays Stan in this episode, that's the Vulcan with the Prince Charles ears, he appeared as a Romulan in Balance of Terror, as did Mark Lennard, who plays Sarek later in this season. And both actors were being considered for the role of Spock because Leonard Nimoy was trying to renegotiate his contract at this point uh, before the second season started. Uh, he and his agent were trying to get his per episode fee from uh, $1,250 $1, to $9,000 an episode, uh, which seems a little high, but they eventually settled on 2500 an episode, and so Spock came back. And of course, the production loved the two of those actors because they both returned. The music for this episode was composed by Gerald Freed, who had composed for several other Trek episodes. And in my opinion, the, epi the music is a character in, in itself in this episode. Um, of course, the fight theme uh, that we mentioned before, which was reused. And I think at this point, any other Trek episode where two guys are, are throwing haymakers at each other, this thing comes on. Uh, and it, of course, it's been used in many, par uh, many parodies and homages to the show, such as on The Simpsons and then probably later on Family Guy at some point. Um, the show was undergoing some changes and upgrades as it entered the second season, uh, with Desilu being bought out by Paramount. DeForest Kelly was added to the starring cast in the credits for the episode, and Roddenberry's name was added as creator with the title. And the main theme now features the soprano voice of Louis Jean Norman accenting it. And of course, later in the second season, Gene Kuhn was replaced as producer on the show by John Meredith Lucas in the mid-season. Uh, this is the first time that we get a look at the full set for Spock's quarters and also the expanded sick base set. In later episodes, we'll see the second level in engineering and the auxiliary control room as well. This is the last episode that Roland Brooks worked on as art director, leaving Walter Jeffries as the sole art director for the rest of the series. Of course, uh, he of Jeffries Tube fame. And this, of course, is the first episode of Walter Koenig as Ensign Pavel Chekhov and the first appearance of Chekhov's awful Davy Jones wig. I don't know. I don't know what was going on there. They just wanted him to look like Davy Jones to get the young girls to watch the show. I guess he hadn't had time to grow his own hair out. Is all. This is the first episode aired, but the last of four shot where he wears the wig. Uh, we actually talked about this in a previous show that we covered called uh, "Who Mourns for Adonais." Funny story. I met Walter Koenig in a bathroom. Let me elaborate. Please. Uh, I was at the. <laughs> I'm sure he'd like you to. <laughs> I was at the Chicago Comic Con in uh, 1998 or 1999. This would have been right around the time when Babylon 5 was wrapping up. And he was appearing to support that. Of course, he was uh, Bester on Babylon 5. And I was in the bathroom. I was at a, a urinal. And um, somebody sidles up next to me. Uh, he is shorter than I am. And I think at the time he was still wearing the rug, like he had that full head of hair. And I remember thinking, like, I know, okay, I don't want to look over because it would be weird, but I know that 
uh, Koenig's supposed to be around. I think a panel was just getting up for Babylon 5. It's probably him. And I finished up, went to wash my hands. He did the same. And I kind of looked at him and he looked at me and I recognized him. He saw that I recognized him and I didn't say anything because it just, I feel like it's bad form. You don't do it in the bathroom. Uh, and we were just kind of like, mm-hmm. yep, yep, it's me. Okay. And then. Then I left. Next to them, <laughs> when you were next to him uh, at the urinals, you didn't uh, glance down and say, "I hope that's set to stun." <laughs> no, no, I no, uh, either. No, yes, uh, that would be a story that he would be telling about a really rude fan, probably, but... <laughs> or 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 it would come at your arraignment. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, I'd be telling the judge that. Yeah, uh, but by all accounts, uh, he is a, a really nice guy. I've met him a couple times. He is very sweet and shy, and just very unassuming fellow absolutely so um amok time Uh, i mentioned theodore sturgeon before as the writer of this episode and it's he's critical to how good this is i think um if our listeners don't know he's an author of over 200 short stories um, 10 or so novels uh his stories were published in weird tales and astounding science fiction other sci-fi magazines of that era uh his work influenced the careers of later authors like harlan ellison and ray bradbury and chip delaney apparently he's the inspiration for kurt vonnegut's kilgore trout character oh i didn't know that yeah and perhaps most importantly he wrote the short story killdozer which was made into a 1974 tv movie and a marvel comic tie-in uh he was most prolific in the late 40s 50s and early 60s and his work was heavily anthologized. I mean, you can't pick up a sci-fi anthology from that era without seeing something by uh, Theodore Sturgeon in there. But it doesn't seem to be really well known to modern readers. Um, I mean, he never won a lot of awards uh, for sci-fi, but I guess it's probably because he wrote before a lot of the major sci-fi and fantasy awards were even conceived. Like the Hugos came about in the mid-50s. Um, so he's not going to get one of those. Roddenberry, of course, you know, was familiar with him. And he was one of the first sci-fi authors that Gene reached out to when he was putting Star Trek together. Gene, of course, wanted talented writers penning stories for the show, and he wanted to give Star Trek a real cachet as sci-fi for grown-ups. And apparently he is credited with creating Sturgeon's Law, which is 90% of sci-fi is crap, but 90% of everything is crap. <laughs> yes, that's true. I've, I've, which... I've, I've heard that before, uh, it is directed from him, and that, that is not incorrect. But I'd always heard it uh, coming from Roddenberry. I'd heard that Roddenberry had said that like 90% of sci-fi TV is crap, but everything is crap. But I guess now I know where he got that no, from. It's a truism. <laughs> so yeah, well, yeah, I, I, wouldn't even, I wouldn't even say that, that Roddenberry was stealing that. He was, uh, he was just applying the law. Just echoing. Sure. Uh, Sturgeon wrote a total of four stories for the show. Um, this this show, uh, Shore Leave, a uh, great episode, an, an unproduced script called The Joy Machine, which was eventually novelized for pocketbooks, and an unproduced sequel to Shore Leave, fittingly titled Shore Leave 2. And he was extremely prolific, but he wasn't really a TV writer, which meant that his scripts were expensive and produced slowly. Um, Amok Time was originally planned as a first season episode, but it had to be moved to the second season because of delays. And there's also a famous story about Shore Leave, uh, which I remember hearing early on in my fandom about like the way the show was produced. Uh, his original script was very fantastical by design, but I guess it was a bit too fantastical, too fantasy for Gene. So he had Gene Kuhn rewrite it. But I guess Gene Kuhn got the wrong message and he like increased the fantasy elements, which, of course, led to Gene 
literally writing pages of the script while they were filming like the page before. So the production would be going on. He'd be in another room typing away and then they'd have to stop until he'd deliver the pages, presumably the ink's still wet, uh, to the production so they could then film that. And of course, I guess Shatner would have to just kind of go over it and figure out the lines and maybe that gives us Shatner's famous pauses. He's just trying to find the dialogue <laughs> for the next part of the scene. Well, I, I will tell you that it is a... Uh... Uh, the the sh- shore leave in particular had to have been a super expensive uh, episode to shoot because you've got, you know, you've got well, the bunny costume alone. Well, not, not <laughs> yes, that, <laughs> but also you've got uh, shooting outside. So you've got to do it yeah. at certain times of daylight. The daylight has to match, you know, your previous shots, um, you know, all of that on location. Uh, heck the, the, the dummy inside the, uh, Inside the suit of armor had to be expensive, you know. Just the props alone in that whole, uh, uh, in that whole episode m- must have yeah. been fantastic. And then you have yeah. to rent a tiger. Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's I, not cheap. I can't imagine that Roddenberry got that bill, and he was saying, "Can't we just write out the tiger? Do we really need a tiger? <laughs> what about a sexy lady in like tiger paint?" Yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. And and Gene would want to audition them. Yeah, of course. Of course he would. He would have uh, first choice on casting. Uh, Like I said before, Gene wanted um, these sci-fi authors to contribute to the show. Uh, We've just discussed on a previous show, City on the Edge of Forever, and Harlan Ellison's first script for that, of course, was completely unfilmable. It would have been millions and millions of dollars. And so the production was very skilled, I think, but there was sometimes a slapdash element in them having to find ways, which you have to do in any TV production, to fit what's on the page to what you can actually do and pay for. Well, and that's why uh, a lot, there were a lot of episodes that were just bottle episodes that used their standing sets right. you know, in a bottle um, so that they could spend money elsewhere on those uh, on those episodes that needed a location shot or that needed... Uh, you know, uh, I, again, you know, I, I can't imagine sitting on the edge of forever as filmed was that expensive since they were using the back lot um, right. and and they had all of the props and uh, stuff that they needed probably just, you know, in the prop department that they didn't have. I think the only thing they probably had to make was the Guardian. Although that yeah. itself had to have been somewhat expensive. Uh, yeah. I mean, originally his script had, uh, now we're on a different episode, but it had uh, extra characters and there was a lot more sort of um, external. I mean, it would have been on, on a studio, but like planet stuff happening on the planet before they go into the Guardian and that sort of thing. So they had to, you know, they pared it down as you would uh, with a second or third draft. Yeah. I, I have to wonder, and maybe you maybe you found this in your research about a muck time, Um but I have to wonder if Dorothy Fontana has some fingerprints on this because of the Vulcan stuff. Yeah, I looked into that. Um, and all the only credit that I could find was Theodore Sturgeon. You'd have to imagine that at least um, Dorothy as the script editor or Gene Kuhn as the producer would have done a pass or two. But it, in all my research, I didn't see any of that. Of course, we've talked about yesteryear on the show previously as well, which establishes quite a bit about Spock and Vulcan life, which was written by Dorothy Fontana. So, yeah, that's that's sort of my crackpot theory for this episode. I think that Dorothy was probably very uh, involved in rewriting the script, but maybe they didn't want to take away from from Theodore in this case. Well, also, if if she was giving it color as opposed to story, I don't yeah. know what the rules, the, 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 the guild rules, rules were back then, but it might have just been, you know, uh, not something that they would have given her credit for because her job was to you know, do that right. sort of thing. 
that was her job. I mean, right, there were exactly. a lot of episodes that Gene had his fingerprints on. Um, <laughs> For sure. That, that, you know, just because he had taken a pass the script uh, that he doesn't get writing credit on. Yeah. And, well, we've talked about, um, I'm referencing other episodes on this episode, but of course this is the first episode of the second season. We've talked previously on the show about the last episode of the second season, Assignment Earth, where he was basically kind of fashioning a lifeboat for himself yeah. <laughs> Star Trek didn't work out and uh, writing a pilot for another series. And of course his fingerprints are all over that. That would have been so. a fun series too. Uh, yes. And uh, it, it, yeah, it absolutely would have. And if you want to check out some of the um, extended series or extended universe novels about that, you can find them for sure. Uh, what is your favorite season? I, I, I'll answer this for myself. Um, I think season two is my favorite. Uh, this episode was nominated for a Hugo and lost to City on the Edge of Forever, and the entire field of of nominees were all Star Trek episodes, just hitting it left and right. Like, I really feel like the show comes into its own. Um, there's the whole third season, third season thing. I think there's some good episodes in the third season, but I think they're really hitting their stride in the second yeah, season. Yeah, I think probably second season uh, was probably the best of the three, if only because... Amok Time is a really good example of an episode that works because it's about these characters. You are interested yeah. in all of this because it's about these characters. Look, the teaser doesn't work if you don't understand who Spock is, that he right. would not act like this. When, yeah, right. when, 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 uh, when McCoy explains that Spock threatens to break his neck and then you see the soup tossed out of his uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, cabin... Yeah, it, you have to know Spock for that teaser to be interesting, and that means the audience is now paying attention. They know these characters, and like you say, the series is really hitting its stride. Yeah, who's this guy throwing soup? Should I be worried about that? Yeah, I well, the musical cues tell you. <laughs> yeah, well, worried. yeah, clearly. And and I love the <laughs> the reaction of Kirk as uh, Spock goes back into his uh, cabin without even waiting for Kirk's answer. Uh, the show is excellent at, uh, at, at closing, closing a scene and going to commercial on Kirk's expression. <laughs> oh yeah. And which they'll continue to, I, there's so many pushes into like Riker or Picard and TNG with the uh, horns coming up as we go to, to break. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm looking at the production schedule and I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, if that's true, if you really need to know Spock and if we've got new viewers coming in at the beginning of the second season who might not know Spock. Like, what episode might be a good choice? And I don't know. The first couple episodes produced, you wouldn't want to lead with Cat's Paw. That's not going to work. Um, maybe Who Mourns for Adonais has some pretty kind of rocky themes that maybe you don't want to start with. Maybe Doomsday Machine? Maybe? Probably, yeah. I think you might. Yeah. That's, you know, it's Captain Ahab. It's a, a, sure, a, sure. a, a common enough uh, story that can hook people in. Um, yeah. But I think someone can watch this episode and get it uh, because mm. they talk about Vulcan being logical, rational, and all of that. So they can, Oh, and we get a lot of it's that. It's not that yeah. they can't uh, see this episode for the first time and, and, and not get it. But the, the, the writers here, uh, the producers, are saying we can really dive into these characters some. And look, some of that probably has to do with uh, with Nimoy being a very popular character coming out, or Spock being a character for Nimoy coming out of the yeah. first season and then wanting to sort of give him uh, some focus. And also, you know, the actor 
is going to say, hey, I just don't want to say fascinating every other episode. Let's, <laughs> right. let's give me something to do and something to think about. And I'll tell you the brilliance of this show, because I think this is one of their perfect episodes. I really can't find anything wrong with this, with, yeah. with Amok Time. Um, whereas, you know, Who Mourns for Adonis, I can find some, some things. Uh, uh, and Cat's Paw, I can find even more. <laughs> well, um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but this one, I, I can't think of anything... Uh, that that sticks out at me, um, but they give a, a, an enormous amount to Shatner too. Who yeah. uh, I was as I as I rewatched it, I noticed that um, Kirk uh, trusts Spock implicitly, doesn't dress him down on his on, on the bridge, but uh, you know when when Spock uh, uh, diverts the the ship to Vulcan against orders. Um, and, right. and Kirk is sort of surprised, you know, what if we di- di- diverted to Vulcan and Chekhov says, are you going to Vulcan? Yeah, we're going there. And, uh, Kirk doesn't call him out. He pulls him off the bridge. Um, he gives him a little bit of a, I'd like to see you in my study. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, de- definitely. He's, he's, uh, um, he's pissed, <laughs> but, yeah, <right. laughs> uh, but, but he's not going to, uh, he's not going to break the chain of command and and make it so that the people who still serve under Spock are going to have a prop. He trusts Spock. He's definitely yeah. trusting him here. Although I will yeah. say, when when Spock did not want, when they're having the discussion in his cabin, and Spock doesn't want to tell him what's going on, um, Kirk orders him to. <laughs> and I thought that yeah. was a little bit of a dick move. I, I think that there, this episode is nominally about Spock, but it, it is really about the connection between Spock and Kirk. Um, which is, I mean, it's fun. It's fuel for the and, shippers as and well. And to a lesser degree, McCoy, because here's the first episode that uh, Spock really says, I'm close with McCoy, too. He is one of my closest friends. Yeah, and, right. And you don't really get that in the first season. No, <laughs> no. And that's more of a... <laughs> I, yeah, the, the whole episode, I think, like it builds from a point where, you're right, he's trying to get the information out of him and he has to order him. And then it builds all the way up to he literally interrupts his wedding <laughs> like uh, because yeah. of, of their relationship, you know, and again, the shippers can go where they want to with that, but it's really about their relationship and how it's grown so much from, from the first season. Um, you know, it start Kirk uh, couches it in the terms of, well, you're worried about him. Yeah, of course he's the best officer in the fleet, but which is like subtext. I mean, he, you know, he cares about him. Sure. Like he's, he's friends with him. And he even says, you know, I, I own my life a dozen times over. I'm going to give up my career. It's worth that. Yeah. And you know what? It, that's, it's, that's one line, but isn't that a really true line? And by the way, it's one of the reasons that later on the search for Spock works. Kirk does right. decide to give up his career. Yeah. Um, because it's the same characters. They are the same characters, but what a thing here in 1967, um, uh, you f- part of the beauty of Shatner sometimes is you f- you you feel it with him. You're you get Shatner is able to completely sell that these men are close enough. They've gone through enough uh, crap together that he's like, yeah, what's a career? This is my friend. Right. Exactly. I think Spock, of course, is central to this episode, and it really it's all on the shoulders of Nimoy, who who does a great job. Um, even though he has to 
part of the episode is him acting catatonic, but he, he still makes it convincing and really compelling. And you do see those kind of flashes. We're reminded, even though that we love the character and we, and we um, want to follow his exploits, you get reminded that he isn't, he isn't human. Um, if he gets mad, he might make a mashed computer. Uh, it, it's a little scary. Um, but yet it's still that dichotomy is something that is fascinating, which you mentioned before. And of course, you tackle in, in Troublesome Minds. Well, I, I think I think the other thing is is that uh, it's important. I, I think fans sometimes forget that Vulcans have deep, deep emotions. It's not that they don't have emotions; it's that they are extremely strong emotions, which is why they had to go to the other side to to let the pendulum swing the other way in an extreme. Because Vulcans, without that kind of control, are what you see in Spock. Here and uh, later in, uh, gosh, what's the episode where they're, uh, they travel back in time? All Our Yesterdays? All Our Yesterdays, yeah, with Mr. Atos. You, don't, you wouldn't want to be on Vulcan 5,000 years ago. Um, <laughs> and there's a, there's a mistake that I think sometimes fans make um, uh, thinking that Vulcans are unemotional. Right. Um, and that's certainly not the case. Yeah. And I love that we get to see that, especially in Spock here. I, by the way, I was I was thinking I said it was a flawless episode. There might be one thing I could pick a nit on. Sure. At certain point, Spock is looking at the childhood photograph of Dupring. Uh-huh. That's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> she must be like eight. Yeah. Well, but, but that's all he's got. I mean, they're 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 separated. It's Why? been 30 Why years. Is that all? Why is that all he has? <laughs> I have a million pictures on my phone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a little silly. But, you know, like I say, that's picking a nit. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, this episode doesn't really get into it, but the Vulcans have very – well, actually, it kind of does. They, the Vulcans have very traditional, almost um, anti-technological ways in their kind of um, – I don't want to say backwards, but they're rustic traditions. And it's it's interesting that a race that is more advanced than humanity um, in later canon, you know, helps shepherds humanity to the stars, chooses on their own world to follow these very rustic sort of traditions. And so, I don't know, maybe they don't have Facebook. Like, maybe he can't look it's, her up. It's also a little weird to me, speaking of that, that they they mentioned to bring his property. Uh, it's a, it seems to be a matriarchy. You know, here's Tapau, who's very important and and very special, and yet uh, the ancient ways seem to be, uh, you know, that he would win uh, win the woman as if as if Tapring was going to be his property. Obviously, not in the modern sense, right. but they sort of revert back to it, you know, at this time of Ponfar, and. And I thought that, that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Which, by the way, I love that. Apparently, he's got a lot of property. Yeah, they find, she mentioned. Yeah. She mentioned that she would have gotten his property. Yeah, and I also like how when um, Bones and uh, and Kirk go down to the surface with him, they're like, "Wow, we didn't know that he was like that big of a deal. Like his family is is pretty big." By the way, doesn't that give some nuance to the later relationship you see with Sarek? Perhaps one of the reasons that Spock's father wanted him to uh, to stay on Vulcan and go to the Vulcan Science Academy it has some ego to it because if spock's family is very very important on vulcan why is he leaving vulcan and going into starfleet which they somewhat frown upon right right uh you know that's maybe even not frown upon maybe it just has to do with um uh look i told everybody that you were going to the vulcan science academy and damn it 
you're, you know, you're part of this family and you're important. I could see that. I mean, they couch it in logical terms, sure. but then again, you know, they seem to couch, uh, sometimes their, their, their needs or their wants as if they are logical needs. Yeah. Uh, it, well, because, you know, they're not always that logical. No, repression is a huge theme throughout this episode. Yeah. You're supposed to go to, you're supposed to be a doctor, Spock. You can't go to clown college. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good way to say it. Let's uh, let's talk about T'Pring. Uh, T'Pring is a very interesting character. I think she doesn't get a ton of screen time, but she figures very centrally in the story. Uh, she's played by Arlene Martell, who's mainly a TV actress. She was also in Hogan's Heroes, and she was in the Harlan Ellison penned Outer Limits episode, Demon of the Glad Hand. Uh, oh, yeah. There is a whiff of outdated sexual politics here, as you pointed out. Um, there's an arranged marriage thing. There's the suggestion of property, like she's something to fight over. But I think a lot of that is kind of subverted in a progressive way in Vulcan culture. Um, as you pointed out, the chief authority figure here is Tapau, um, played by Celia Lovsky, who, fun fact, was married to Peter Laurie. Uh, who's clearly in charge of this. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Uh, this was right around the um, uh, the end of like the uh, German uh, sort of Weimar cinema time, like M, the Fritz Lang time. Um, she's clearly in charge of the situation. Um, Spock does refer to a woman playing servant, but to a man that is hers. So that seems complicated, but equal. Uh, and even to bring herself... She has a lot of power in this situation. Um, she's sort of being fought over, but she's basically ordering the death of a Starfleet captain because she wants out of her arranged marriage. And nobody with pointy ears is batting an eye at that. True. You know, either a starship captain or a starship first officer. Right, exactly, yeah. One of them is going to buy it. Th- and by the way, her explanation, her, her logical explanation of why she did this that uh, Spock says is flawless. And by the way, notice she's honored by it. Right. She's honored by him saying that it's flawless. Right. <laughs> is an amazingly wonderful explanation. Yeah. I mean, it's, she's got it. She's had this planned for a long time. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, and it's only through the uh, quick thinking and cunning of the, the Enterprise crew and the chief medical officer that they sort of avoid that. Yeah, McCoy saved the day this time, didn't he? Yeah, he did, yeah. Uh, and her reasoning, too, is interesting. Um, it gives her a lot of sort of depth and relatability, I think, because it isn't like, oh, I don't like your bowl cut or something like that. It's she doesn't she doesn't want the pressure of being married to this guy who's essentially become an offworlder and, you know, the consort of legend or whatever. He's this big thing now in Starfleet. She just wants to date the Prince Charles guy. <laughs> it's funny. I wondered how true that was. Oh, Interesting. With the backstory that we get later um, in yesteryear, sort of, right? With with some Vulcans, sort even, hell, even Tapau says it: are are the Vulcan or are the human? Right. And the way she says human is like she has a bad taste in her yeah, mouth. Yeah, yeah. It makes me wonder: does Dupring maybe have a problem with Spock? I mean. Vulcans seem to be a little bit racist. Ethnocentric, I think is a sensitive way to say that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, but it is a it is a different race. That's and true. and it's and it's and it, what they really might think as opposed to it being uh, a biological thing is look, these humans they can't un, they can't cope with the feelings that we have. Right. Um and have to repress and they don't have the 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 grip on logic that we do. Yeah. And so it's like uh, it's like a man might look at uh, um, uh, someone who is weaker than they are and just sort of look down their nose and they say, look, let me lift the 400 pound thing. You can't. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and so I wondered if, if Dupring did, wasn't, uh, uh, how shall I say it? Uh, sugarcoating it a little bit by saying, hey, you're such a legend, I didn't okay, want Okay, sure. She's giving him an out there. But I'll tell you, we could have a Vulcan soap opera is what this episode taught me. Oh, boy, I want that so much. <laughs> well, it, it would be a, a good telenovela. I think it's a little more sexually progressive um, than you could expect. Um, there might be some missteps, but I think it's it's okay. Um, the one thing, well, certainly for the '60s, it's oh, pretty, for the, uh, yeah, certainly. The one thing that you were talking before about possible little flaws in this like best of episode, I still don't really. I mean, I like intellectually the idea of Nurse Chapel having a thing for Spock, but every time I see it on screen, it just never really works for me. And this is kind of another example. They give Major Barrett her big scene where she's going to try to, you know, confront single tear. She's talking to Spock, and I just never really kind of buy it. It's because she comes off kind of as needy. Oh yeah, I'd yeah, rather. Yeah. I'd rather she came off uh, stronger than that. Sure. Um, uh, and I also, it's a little bit, again, creepy on Spock's part. As soon as he doesn't think that they're making it to Vulcan, he's like, I'm going to have to mac on her <laughs> just so I can survive. Right. And he's like, you know, hey, come here, Christine. Right. Um, and as soon as she says we're bound for Vulcan, he's like, oh. Never mind. Oh, uh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> just ices her. <laughs> I mean, that was just sort of cold. Yeah, right. Uh, and then, by the way, notice at the very end of the episode, she's dismissed. Yep. She's <laughs> just, would you leave us alone? And then the three guys, you know, have their little chortle. Right. And that would, that is, that would totally not be done in modern television. No, no. Well, we, That's definitely a, a relic of the city. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, well, certainly in storytelling in uh, 60s television, uh, you get to that fifth act and it's like, yeah, we're, we're out of here. Just wrap it up. Credits. We got to go. Uh, speaking of sex, uh, you brought it up. Uh, how does Pon, <laughs> how does Pon Far work? I mean, come on. So they have sex at least every seven years or they die. Like, is this the writers projecting their needs or something like how does I know that they repress is, their emotions, but is the seven years actually mentioned in this episode? That's a good question. I, yeah. yeah. Um, because it's, you know, Spock is clearly um, a mature uh, adult Vulcan and it's been 30 yeah. years since he's seen uh, to Pring. So do Vulcans age slower. Is Spock a teenager? Is he a teenage Vulcan? He also did say that he had, uh, they hoped he had been spared this. Oh. So it's, it's possible through other relationships because it's also clear to me that he's had other relationships. Mm. Um, uh, God, what was the name in, uh, this side of paradise? The, the oh, young yes. lady. Um, I'm blocking on her name, but you know who I'm talking about. Yeah. It seemed to me they had a relationship that he could not give himself fully to, but that there was some sort of relationship there. Right, right. So so perhaps when he said he'd hoped he'd been spared this, it's because he had been uh, uh, a little more human in his dalliances than Vulcan. And so he figured this wasn't going to be a concern. Sure. Which also might have pissed off to Pring if they were supposed to have been <laughs> sure. together earlier. right. Well, and also in Star Trek Three, uh, the the subtext was always that Savick had to um, help the young Spock on the Genesis planet along every seventeen minutes or so. <laughs> was the, since that's how <laughs> that was the conversion rate seventeen minutes to seven seven years. <laughs> I'm, I'm just you know I'm guessing. It seemed like a day on that planet right. was accelerated. You know, uh, six yeah, yeah. Years, so <laughs> you know, I didn't do the math, but. Um, uh, my guess is is that for Vulcans who uh, stay away 
from uh, certain uh, uh, mating rituals um, that they uh, <laughs> are overcome with this plaque uh, yes. tau and they have to do something about it. I guess the idea is otherwise they'd be all intellectual and they'd never have any children. I don't know. <laughs> I think I don't think it was necessarily fully thought out, um, but it was oh, an interesting certainly. idea. And uh, I, I don't think either that they thought that the fans were ever going to, um, uh, you know, dive so into it, uh, the minutia and be curious about the minutia of it. <laughs> I will say this. It has always annoyed me that uh, later episodes or even earlier ones maybe um, discussed it in a way that was more open than during a muck time because Spock made it pretty clear this is super, yes. super private. Um, and yet it seemed to, I, I think it was known about later in, in Voyager's time, at least. Now, I guess it, uh, culturally, I guess Vulcans could be growing, but I don't know. Yeah, but it also maps on just the depiction of sex on TV from the 60s until the 90s, the time of Voyager. Um, just like, I mean, like Lucy couldn't say that she was pregnant. You know what I mean? And so I, I, it's like such an interesting sort of sort of meta commentary on that um, when this episode uh, up played in uh, Germany um, back in the 60s, they had to cut the entire mating plotline out. Um, instead, that would when have been they redubbed a 12-minute episode. Well, no, but they redubbed it to say that Spock had like a space fever oh. and he had to go to Vulcan to get a cure for it. And then I don't know how they did the whole <laughs> wedding thing, but or who that lady was with the ears. But it just... <laughs> It's just so interesting. Like for me, it's and it's an obvious metaphor, but like the sexual repression of this. Because remember, like we're not at it's sixty seven, sixty eight, but we're not free love yet. Free love hasn't hit the airwaves yet, and so Trek is doing its best to make this, you know, the 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 twenty third century of humans seem like a society that could handle just about anything. Um, and so they're trying to get that in there. Of course, they use you know Vulcan biology, but of course they mean you know sex. And of course, later series like TNG goes the other way. They really put the pedal down where Riker is just, you know, he's just going to Risa every other weekend uh, to have a little fling. And and Picard is going there apparently to read. Right. But don't put the Horgon out. Come on, Picard. This is, <laughs> he's, he's, act like you've been there. He's going there to read in his Speedo, though. So <laughs> yeah, I think he yeah. was looking to just get uh, action with somebody who also enjoyed a good book occasionally. Right. Yeah, maybe. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> uh, here's my question do married vulcans enjoy the marital bed like once this whole uh, marriage happens and the ponfar and the and the plaktau is satisfied does anything else happen i, I mean i'm gonna say Amanda, yes and, yeah. and the reason i say yes is obviously there are vulcan children well, um, sure. they're snotty little brats according to <laughs> yesteryear um yeah, and uh the 2009 reboot uh, yeah that's right yes indeed um and also you know Sarek, who was a full Vulcan, he showed a great deal of affection uh, for Amanda. Human women? <laughs> well, for human women, yes. Um, but maybe That says something about Sarek, It maybe. does. Because if they're sticking to the Vulcan traditions, Amanda Grayson seems pretty relaxed for somebody who's getting lucky about as often as a cicada. <laughs> well, I, see, I think it's more often than that. <laughs> you know, he was, uh, uh, he, he physically, they physically touched uh, quite yes, a bit. Yes, that's true. Um, which, you know, the finger thing, which I think is akin to necking. So that's, yeah, Nick, sure. that's, that's PDA as far as Vulcans are concerned. <laughs> Vulcan and, PDA. That's right. And the, the other thing I think is, is that, uh, you know, he was an ambassador. He was, while not an off-worlder himself, he obviously enjoyed uh, Earth and human culture. Um, yeah. And it's one of the reasons why 
uh, I never bought the whole um, uh, Sarek didn't like Spock's human half. Um, mm. I think that Sarek's problem with Spock uh, had a lot to do with uh, Spock's choices. His vision of what Spock should be as an adult and how Spock turned out as an adult were different. And that mm. also is a very common theme among just people in general. Your, how you see your child and how your child sees themselves uh, usually don't meet, no matter how right. good a parent or bad a parent you are. And I think it was the, it was the fifth movie um, where Sarek apparently didn't like that Spock looked so human when he was born, and I never bought that. I, I, mm. I strike that from canon. Okay, okay, sure. <laughs> well, Roddenberry sure. struck it from canon, so I'm striking it from canon too. Right. And of course, um, you know, biology sort of takes over because as Spock ages, he he f- goes into the role that Sarek has. I mean, he becomes an ambassador, and 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 much more comfortable with himself. You know, yes. it's actually one of the things I really like about uh, the Wrath of Khan movie um, is that here's an older Spock. I'm sorry, I know we should be talking about a muck time, but, oh, but please, <laughs> it, it sort of dovetails in that Spock is still having trouble. You know. Uh, keeping his logic and his emotions in check. And by the time the Wrath of Khan comes around, he does not let logic or emotion rule him. He says things like, logic suggests. Um, uh, you know, and, and Kirk says, are you about to tell me that, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, uh, you know, logic alone dictate, dictates your actions. And Spock doesn't <laughs> say otherwise. He says, I would not remind you of that which you know so well, which is right. a way of basically saying, yeah, okay, I, I, I got my problems too, bud. I know that. We're talking about you. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, and so I think Spock has matured into someone who, you know, as, as we all grow older, um, uh, hopefully we become more at peace with ourselves, and he's more right. at peace with himself. And the Spock yeah. that we see in the original series is almost like a teenager, and perhaps why he struck a chord with people in the 60s in general, because there was a whole generation that I'm not saying was teenagery, but was having that sort of existential angst, that cultural yeah. existential angst. And he spoke to that, and that plays out in this episode especially, um, and uh, I think it's one of the reasons it's one of the best. Yeah. And just to double down on the movie talk, of course, um, as when Spock loses his life and then comes back and he's trying to reintegrate himself, you've got you know all of Star Trek Four where he's very sort of robotic, having been reborn in his in his new body and trying to embrace the Vulcan traditions and the logic without the emotions necessarily. And then by the time we get to Star Trek Six, he's fully integrated and he's more powerful than he ever was. Well, I also and think even... he remembers everything now. Yes, and, yes, and so he remembers everything he's learned about himself. And even to the point where he, we don't see this very often with Spock, he can doubt himself. You know, he, have you and I grown so old and inflexible? Uh, That's one of my favorite scenes just in all of the canon of Star Trek where Spock and Kirk meet each other at the same point. And he's like, yeah, that's what I do every day, Spock. (laughs) Every day I'm asking myself (laughs) if this is the right thing to do. So I'm glad that we can connect like this. Well, you know, it's funny that that movie of all things, not that it's the best of the movies, but it has one of my favorite lines too. Because, and from Spock, uh, because he says to uh, Valeris, which thankfully she doesn't have a T name, um, <laughs> right? Because uh, uh, I have a problem with all Vulcans having male ass and women T. It's weird. Now I have to dig into that to figure out why she doesn't have a T name. <laughs> yeah, really. Um, anyway, he says to her, 
what you want is irrelevant. What you've chosen is at hand. That is something that hits every person in their face at a certain point. No matter what mm. choices you've made, if you can't undo it now, it doesn't matter what you want because you chose this. And, uh, and, I and by the way, he's angry because he's been betrayed. Um, and it's so funny. He's now Sarek and she's Spock because Sarek was angry at Spock. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't talking to him in, in Journey to Babel. He literally ignored his own son. So don't tell me Vulcans can't be snotty. <laughs> Absolutely they can. Uh, I wanted to mention really quick, uh, I watched this on Netflix, you know, the remastered episodes. Yeah, and, you know, they look great. I can't fault the work, nor, but I kind of miss the original effects sometimes. But I have to say that the CGI work in this episode is great, especially the the long shot you get of the uh, of the, uh, the, the the shrine, you know, as they're coming into uh, Vulcan. It's fantastic. And how they made it reference essentially yesteryear. The yeah, exactly. Right. Looks yeah. like uh, from the the animated series. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, there are a lot of great moments in this episode. Um, I think one that stands out specifically for me is what and poor Stan. He just he just fell in love with a girl and he gets dragged into this whole thing. But uh, once uh, you know, to bring kind of make a choice and the battle's over. I like that line that he gives to him about how. Uh, you know, having something is not so great as uh, as wanting it. Yeah, which is another great sentiment. Yeah, that's that's practically Vulcan Jerry Springer talk. There, <laughs> I mean, it is. He, he's he's basically saying, yeah, you, you are not the Ponfar. Give, give me a give me a call in a couple of years. We'll see how well that's going for you. Yeah, right, exactly. Because because yeah. she just screwed me over. You're next. Yeah, what's going to happen next? Yeah, let's see how that logic uh, goes. Which, by the way, I assume she's now free to uh, marry him. It makes me wonder if uh, uh, Spock's family does a lot of these things that are sort of ancient and uh, very traditional. I wonder if Sarek goes uber traditional because he married uh, 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 an Earth woman, and maybe his father doesn't like that. My mother... Um, she didn't keep kosher and my father did and she would sort of, she wasn't religious at all. And, uh, later on when I got older, I stopped being religious and she went the complete opposite direction. I think feeling like her not being religious somehow encouraged me sure. as if that wasn't, you know, my own decision as an adult. Um, yeah. and she became very, very religious and, uh, yeah. and more traditional. Whereas when she was younger, she never cared about that stuff. Um, okay. so it sure. makes me wonder if, you know, uh, uh, maybe Sarek sowing his wild oats is one of the things that uh, makes him more of a traditionalist later in life. Possibly. Of course, he produced Cybok as well. Who no, the... that, that, that movie didn't happen. That's your headcanon. <laughs> yes. Yeah. My, my, my headcanon doesn't include that. But you're going to give up uh, McCoy uh, helping his father, uh, euthanizing his own father? No, you know, I can have that in a different little, you know, I can just have, take that piece out. Right, take what you want, leave the rest, like your salad bar. I will say, uh, Kirk saying he needs his pain, I liked from that movie. But look, the truth is, there is no such thing as uh, uh, you know, stuff being true, uh, because they're all just made-up stories. Um, you know, right. There are people who love the continuity, and sometimes I like the continuity too, uh, but when continuity doesn't fit, uh, my line is always, I leave all questions of continuity to Captain James R. Kirk of the United Earth Space Probe Agency. <laughs> right. There you uh, go. So, so you know, don't don't try to sell me that this isn't anything more than a television show in a movie series. 
uh, because none of it fits that if you look that closely. And stop looking that closely. Just enjoy the ride. Sure. It, repeat to yourself, it's just a show. It's just quote another show. Yes, indeed. Uh, I like your idea about Sarek's father, and maybe you've got your new uh, book idea there. Maybe so. Send it to the editor. Sure. Uh, I just I can't get out of this without mentioning uh, the moment at the end, which is if you wanted to complain about, you know, well, that's not what the character would do. Who cares in this moment? Because Leonard Nimoy has such an amazing uh, charismatic smile and it's used so infrequently is that whenever you see it on the show, because Spock's being, you know, he's got goofy gas or he's being mind controlled or he's just happy to see Jim. Like it's that's a, such a great moment when he's just like Jim. And he's like, he's just super happy about it. And of course, you get the takedown by McCoy after that when he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure there's just, it's logical in a pig's eye. Yeah. But Kirk stood up for his friend. Uh, right. <laughs> yes. You know, and sort of made fun of McCoy. Um, but I, I will say this. It is a genuine, wonderful moment. Um, and it is uh, because he's not under the influence of anything when he's smiling. He doesn't have spores or anything. He's not being forced <laughs> right. by Carmen. Uh, right. uh, <laughs> but it, that is that is the character of Spock. And you see him fully in this uh, episode. You see his his low points, his struggles, his high points. And best of all, more than any other episode of the original series, um, you see why these three people are friends. Yeah, it's all about friendship. Yep. Well, as we wrap up the show here, did you have any last thoughts or things you wanted to get out about the episode? I think the the only thing that that comes to my mind when I think of this episode is, uh, is how uh, they've cemented just to follow up on what I was saying, they've cemented that these three people will follow each other anywhere, will do anything for one another. And um, you know, that's one of the things you like about heroes. And it's in fact, in right. almost every hero movie is what the heroes will do for each other and for other people. And that's why these people are heroes to me. Yeah. Darmok and Jalada Tanagra. Um, or, or, or Kirk and Spock and the on wound. That's right. Yes. <laughs> the on wound was the, was the, the one you said. Yeah. It gives you the reach, right? Yeah. Right. Yes. That's the, uh, it's a blade, a knife tied to a strip of cloth. Ca- the captain like strangler. Yes. The captain strangler. I'd love to be more elequent, but I think it speaks for itself and I eat it up like plumeek soup. Uh, <laughs> speaking of, speaking of Sarek, are you looking forward to discovery? Uh, Sarek will appear in the CBS all access show. Yes, absolutely. I'm looking forward to discovery on so many levels. I think you've got, um, so many talented people really trying to make star Trek. You've got yeah. Nick Meyer, you've got, uh, all of the, my, uh, my friend, Kirsten Beyer, who's one of the other Star Trek novelists sure. on the writing staff. Um, and it irritates me so that our fans are like, well, I think it's going to be horrible. Well, you haven't seen it yet. And the other thing you don't know <laughs> is these people, they love Star Trek and they know what they're yeah. doing. So you watch yeah. that series. That's all I have to say about that. <laughs> Fair enough. Let's talk My Space Dad Can Beat Up Your Space Dad. Who's your favorite captain and why? Kirk. <laughs> Kirk is my favorite captain because he is... I think sort of the most flawed um, and I think uh, uh, flawed captains or flawed people in general are, uh, are the most interesting. Hmm. Um, I really like Picard. I like all of them, yeah. uh, but uh, 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 you know, all of them are interesting. You can find interesting things about all of them, but Kirk is the most, uh, I was going to say a bad word. Uh, he's the most screwed up. Yeah. 
Um, and the most I, human. The most human, yeah. Uh, and just the most, you know, you can see he is an onion layer after layer of emotional problems. <laughs> yeah. And it's actually one of the things I like about the newer movies is that Kirk is kind of messed up in that one. Interesting, interesting. Um, I, I, like, I like characters who are flawed, who doubt themselves. You don't see Picard doubting himself that often. I mean, yeah. sometimes you get to see it. Um, I, it's one of the reasons the Brothers episode is so good. Yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons why First Contact is so good. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think, uh, by and large, Kirk is my favorite because he's the most messed in the head. Yeah. Picard is a guy you can really admire, but I agree. It's, it's hard to find real purchase just in terms of his character because he just does everything right all the time. Yes, he does. Although I'll tell you, there are times when he can do everything right, and he's still a fascinating character. Oh yeah, um, Inner Light was a fantastic, uh, uh, a fantastic boy. That, now I'm thinking of great Picard episodes, of which of which there are many. Um, <laughs> especially in the later seasons, they really, um, you know, it's it's it, it it tells me that actors later on get to uh, have, I think, more input into their characters. Oh, see, and yeah. I think a lot of that is Patrick Stewart because yeah. he's awesome. Sure. Well, now that we've reached the end of the show, you receive a commission and the rank of ensign. What department on the ship do you work in? Oh, um, I would be in food services. <laughs> Okay, so so this is um, I'm assuming um, original series era. So there's got to be somebody behind the little panel that goes up and down that they. Have... Yeah, I I in fact am in the wall, reading the little card and uh, quickly putting together uh, uh, extra condiments. Sure, sure. And uh, and and popping them out. And boy, boy, did I get Kirk once when I filled everything with a tribble. <laughs> yeah, that was. Yeah, I remember that was good. That was good. That reminds me of um, I went to a, a convention um, uh, convergence in Minneapolis, and there is a ship called the USS Nokomis, which is a fan run ship, and they do a Star Trek themed room every year. And they had a a food uh, uh, producer uh, unit, uh, and you could go in, and the person would ask you, uh, "Do you want the red card or the blue card?" And you could pick what you want. They slide the card through the slot, and they had somebody behind the wall who would put like a rice krispie treat or like a cookie, you know, depending on what you picked. <laughs> and so the thing would come out, and the little tray would come out. And you'd go, "Oh, thank you." It was just it was really neat. Was there a sound effect? Uh, there was a sound effect. Uh, there were no tribbles though. Every tenth one, they should have stuck a tribble in there just they to see people's reactions. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. I love that. Well, Ensign Gallanter, thanks for joining me to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If you want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? Um, I am on uh, Twitter at, uh, I think it's Dave.Gallanter. It's either Dave.Gallanter or Dave Gallanter. Um, and I'm on Facebook. Um, and uh, I don't know, Google me, you'll find me. I have a, a fairly large internet footprint. Excellent. Well, thanks again for joining me. Thank you. It was a lot of fun. I always enjoy talking Star Trek. We're signing off until the next mission. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.